You are listening to the sermon podcast of Connection Church, a gospel-centered community on a mission to make much of Jesus in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. For more information, visit SiouxFallsConnection.com. Thank you for listening. We've been walking as a church through the book of Judges, an Old Testament book that tells the story of how as God's people were let free and delivered from the bondage in Egypt in the book of Exodus, they are led out, we see in the book of Joshua, to inherit this promised land. And the Lord will exercise judgment on the people for their awful things that they have done in that land. They, they would sacrifice their children. And so the promised land is, a, is not only a picture of God's deliverance, but it's a, a picture of justice against against the unjust. And so they begin to inhabit the land. And then the book of Judges, immediately following the book of Joshua, is a picture of the second generation figuring out, figuring out how they will settle in and how they will just simply live in the land that they've been granted. And as I share, I, I know this is an axiom in my own house, you can't have anything nice. And so as this group of people have inherited this beautiful blessing of God's deliverance and the promise of a place and rest, the people's response, you'll see even in the first verse. So I'm going to read chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is quite possibly my favorite story in the book of Judges, and therefore I, I feel the weight of probably not doing this justice. Now, I'm going to read you chapter 4 and chapter 5. It's going to take between 8 and 9 minutes to get all the way through it. Now, I, I encourage you all the time on this. I want to intentionally stretch your attention span for the Bible. And I want to intentionally stretch your attention span for the teaching of the Bible. And so I understand over the next eight or nine minutes, you might, you might kind of like drift off. I get it. I absolutely understand. But I would encourage you, pay very close attention to the thing that brings you back to the text. The thing that brings you back to this room. And then consider the possibility that that thing that's brought you back to this room might be something that the Holy Spirit is actually using through your own attention span. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 4, we'll read the entirety of chapter 4 and chapter 5. And the people of Israel, again, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. And the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 people, 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun. And I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory, 
for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kadesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels, and Deborah went up with him. Now Haber, the Kenite, had separated from the Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Za'ananim, which is near Kadesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up from Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Herosheth, Herosheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon. And Deborah said to Barak, Up! For this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him, and the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots and the army to Harosheth Hagoyim, and all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Haber the Kenite. For there was a peace between Jabin, the king of Hazor, and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And she said to her, and he said to her, please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes and asks you, is anyone here, say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So, he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead with the tent peg in his temple so on that day God subdued Jabin the king of Canaan before the people of Israel and the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin the king of Canaan until they destroyed Jabin king of Canaan then sang Deborah and Barak the son of Abinoam on that day that the leaders took the lead in Israel, that the people offered themselves willingly. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes, to the Lord I will sing. I will make melody to the Lord, the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the region of Edom, the earth trembled 
and the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. The mountains quaked before the Lord, even Sinai before the Lord, the God of Israel. In the days of Shamgar, son of Anoth, in the days of Jael, the highways were abandoned and travelers kept to the byways. The villagers ceased in Israel. They ceased to be until I arose. I, Deborah, arose as a mother in Israel. When new gods were chosen, then war was in the gates. Was shield or spear to be seen among 40,000 in Israel? My heart goes out to the commanders of Israel who offered themselves willingly among the people. Bless the Lord. Tell of it. You who ride on white donkeys and you who sit on rich carpets and you who walk by the way to the sound of musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord, the righteous triumphs of His villagers in Israel. Then down to the gates marched the people of the Lord. Awake! Awake, Deborah, awake, awake, break out in a song. Arise, Barak, lead away your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then down marched the remnant of the noble. The people of the Lord marched down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim, the, their route, they marched down into the valley, following you, Benjamin, with your kinsmen. From Machir, marched down the commanders, and from Zebulun, those who bear the lieutenant's staff. The princes of Issachar came with Deborah, and Issachar faithful to Barak. Into the valley they rushed at his heels among the clans of Reuben. There were great searchings of heart. Why did you sit still among the sheepfolds to hear the whistling for the flocks? Among the clans of Reuben, there were great searchings of heart. Gilead stayed beyond the Jordan, and Dan why did he stay away with the ships? Why did he stay with the ships? Asher sat still at the coast of the sea, staying by his landings. Zebulun is a people who risk their lives to the death. Naphtali, too, on the heights of the field. The kings came, they fought, then fought the kings of Canaan at Ta'anak by the waters of Megiddo. They got no spoils of silver. From heaven, the stars fought. From their courses, they fought against Sisera. The torrent, Kishon, swept them away. The ancient torrent, the torrent, Kishon, march on my soul with might. Then loud beat the horse's hoofs with the galloping, galloping of his steeds. Curse Miraz, says the angel of the Lord. Curse its inhabitants thoroughly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. Most blessed of women be Jael. The wife of Haber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. He asked for water, she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. She sent her hand to the tent peg and her right hand to the workman's mallet. She struck Sisera, she crushed his head, she shattered and pierced his temple. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Dead. Out of the window she peered. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. Why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Her wisest princess's answer. Indeed, she answers herself. Have they not found and divided the spoil? 
a womb or two for every man, spoil of dyed materials for Sisera, spoil of dyed materials embroidered, two pieces of dyed work embroidered for the neck as spoil, so may all your enemies perish, O Lord. But your friends be like the sun as he rises in his might. And the land had rest for 40 years. I want you to see here in this passage as we walk through it as best we can in the time we have together that God delivers his people by remembering the victimized and inviting them to be a part of his stunning salvation and victory over the enemy. The book of Judges has been a stunning picture so far of God's marvelous salvation, but every time God saves, it's through unlikely and unexpected means. Did you catch this? It's like, this is all about the ladies today. I want to say ladies' night, but it's not night. That's all I got. It's, this, is, this, is a, this is all about the ladies. Did you catch this? And we get a picture of a courageous Deborah. You get a picture of a cautious Barak and this evil man Sisera subdued by a tent-dwelling woman with a hammer and a big nail. I want you to see here as we follow the progression of this story, they begin to pace each one of these things out. You saw in chapter 5 was a, what we would call a narrative history. It was prose. Did you, did you catch that? Even if you look at the text, the, the way that the publishers will, will lay that out, it's, it's just like a story. It's a narrative. It's prose. And it's a history of the facts and figures. This happened here. This happened here. Historical narrative common for the rest of the Bible. But chapter 5, you have interjected, as you see somewhere, sometimes you see this in, in Deuteronomy and certainly the whole of the Psalms, a, a pro, a, a interruption, of the pro, in, interruption of the prose with poetry. And chapter 5 is this triumphal song, this song of praise for what God has done. Now it's important, the reason I read them both together, because if you just read chapter 4, did you, did you catch there was like there was holes in the story? There were some ambiguous parts of the story where you were like, well, what, what caused that? Why did that happen? What's going on there? Right? Did you catch it? All of a sudden the whole enemy was routed, but you don't really know why. And then what you saw in the poetry, did you, did you catch it two different times? Apparently, an amazing thing happened. The battle took place, did you hear those words? Kishon. That's what we would call, in, at least in Old, Testament, in Old Testament geography, a wadi. What we would call a river bottom, right? A flood plain. And that is something in the ancient Near East that would have stayed dry, except for the rainy season. And so, they go and they meet the enemy in this wadi, in this flood plain. And what happens? You see in verse 4 of chapter 5, it fills in the gaps. Why was it that they were routed? Why was it that they were overwhelmed? The earth trembled, and then what happened? The heavens dropped. Right? That's, that's like, it didn't just rain. The, hev the heavens dropped. Yes, the clouds dropped water. And he explains it again later, that in fact it was the stars, did you catch that? The stars conspired for this. And it was the stars that brought about, like there was the, some miraculous work of nature in verse 20, and from their courses they, did you catch that? This idea of like, that which was above ran their courses and, and they fought 
Sisera, in verse 21 of chapter 5, then the torrent of Kishon swept them away. The torrent, the ancient torrent, three times, in case you missed it. Did you catch it? Like, the chapter 5 fills in the gaps. How did they win? Well, evidently, they went out into battle in a floodplain, presumably because Sisera, with all of his chariots, now this would have been a symbol of the most advanced technology available at the time. And they went out into this floodplain. Each of these chariots worth more than many men apiece. And what happens? They get stuck in the mud. They're overwhelmed and then overrun. And so what I, what I see here, in this, this victory over the enemy shows us a few different things. I, th- I think we find two different themes and then at least four different principles. Now this, more than any other story, I probably would not get to cover everything I want to cover, so we're going to do our best and we'll see what happens. But the first theme you see here that you'll pick up in chapter 4 and chapter 5 is what I would simply describe as moral ambiguity. Now, I shared this with you a few chapters ago, and I'll go into greater length to talk about this, especially when these, when these next judges come along. But here, here's what I'm going to tell a bunch of upper Midwest, probably you know, good citizens who are nice and work hard, that moralism is attempting and deceiving false hope. What do I mean by moralism? Well, let me, let me give you a couple of Webster and other definitions as they define what a moralism is. It's, it's an exaggerated emphasis on the principles of right and wrong behavior and the goodness or badness of human character. That is, a concern for a person's standards of behavior or beliefs concerning what is and is not acceptable for them to do. More than any other book in the Bible, Judges destroys moralism. It destroys it. Well, why is that a big deal? Why is that a problem? Why is it a false gospel? Well, let me just kind of unpack this very briefly. In the end, moralism underneath it boils down to a view of the world that, at least in the Eastern cultures, we would just simply call karma. That is that in the world, there are two opposing forces that are roughly equal, that are working against one another. And and in the end, the the goal is to kind of figure out which of these opposing forces is at work. And there's good versus evil. And they're duking it out. Why is that a problem? If you read the book of Revelation, you find out that the war that good and righteous God fights against evil lasts one verse. God is not struggling in his goodness to overcome evil. God has fully swallowed up evil, destroyed it, and now uses evil as a puppet for his good purposes. He is not thwarted by evil. He is not bothered by it. He simply overwhelms it and overcomes it. And so moralism is, a, is the outworking, believing that oh, in the end there's a good and there's a bad. And, and even then, like, did, did, you feel the, did you feel the pull here like, to maybe kind of chalk up in the last week and this week the good people and the bad people? Ehud, remember him? He sneaks in and deceptively, like, hey, I have a word of the Lord from you. you have a, oh, you have a word of the Lord? And <laughs> cuts him deep, right? And then you have this, and you have this picture of, of, of my favorite, JL. She's like, oh, come in, come in. Don't be afraid. <laughs> right? And then drives us, 
drives a nail through his head. And you're, and you're kind of like, was that good? Was that deceptive? Was that, like, was that what just happened? Or, I mean, and, and you're left like, and a good moralist, the second problem is underneath moralism that boils down to karma, there's also a second false belief that we can be good people. That ultimately, it is within our power to be good or bad. And even worse, to make ourselves good or to make ourselves bad. And you feel, I I want you to know this, this is something we all will constantly, we will work through and the book of Judges will mess you up. If you you believe in kind of the, if if you're the older brother, you're more legalistic, you're the obedient one, right? You, you, you have observed and worshipped and trusted in this God whether you realize it or not, right? And your parents, just like any good parents, have, have, you'll hear phrases in, in our part of the world say like, well, yeah, they were really raised right, right? Do you, you hear it? As if to say there's the right way and the wrong, there's a good and a bad. As if it's within our reach to grasp. It's an anti-gospel because in the end, we actually are the bad, <laughs> We're the ones who rebel against God. And instead of good versus evil, the Lord destroying the bad, which he should do, what does he do? He embraces them. He absorbs, he unites himself with the evil enemy rebellious ones. He unites himself with them. So so don't miss that judges will address this moral ambiguity in efforts so that you will stop hoping in whether you are good or bad, whether there is a good or bad, but instead that God is good, that God is sufficient. And so I I want you to make sure going forward, we'll talk about this more, especially when Samson comes in. You're like, be like Samson. Wait, 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 don't, don't actually, right? You feel the weight of this? Hey, you, hey, ladies, be like JL. You're like, wait, don't actually, the moral ambiguity is meant to lead us to have less and less hope in our ability to be able to decipher what's right and what's wrong, but instead it's meant to lead us to trust that God alone is good, that his purposes alone are good. Are we able to understand them? No. So don't miss, one of the themes that we see here is the undermining of believing that people are intrinsically good or bad and that we can somehow decipher it's a seductive idol for us because it says that we are the judge of good and evil right what does that even say about you like i know good from evil like the first couple of chapters of the bible says that that is actually the evidence of rebellion the minute you desire to judge what is good and evil is is the ex, it's it's the expression of desiring to be god one of the other seductive aspects of moralism is that we can be good people. That ultimately God will receive us and accept us because we have earned it. And lastly, that we can, if we're not good people, we sure can make ourselves good. We can fix it. And judges, especially here, but certainly for the rest of this, uh, the rest of the book, goes right after it. And so you're left with these ambiguous kinds of pictures. Well, who's the hero? Who's, who's, right? I mean, did you catch that? Like, Deborah's like, look, you're not going to get the glory. 
a woman's going to get the glory. And you're like, oh, it's Deborah. It's the judge. And then you're like, no, it's actually this other person you've never even heard of. So all I would say is I'm going to caution you. If you find yourself wondering who the good guy is and who the bad guy is, you're missing the point. There is only one who is good, and it is God. And so we're meant to kind of like go, ooh, we're, man, we're really awful. Yeah, exactly. Thank God that he's not. Right? So don't miss, again, you, you can call yourself a Christian in American Western Christianity and really just be believing in some sort of baptized version of karma. And you can be a very good Christian Buddhist. Ultimately believing that Christ isn't what's needed, but I have the power to, to be good myself. But don't, that, that, is, that is not true. That is, a, that, is a, that is a mixing of things that don't work. And as you feel the tension going forward, as good upper Midwestern folk should, you should be like, oh, shoot, I'm not that good. Yeah, but thank God he is. Second theme you see pictured here, okay? Men and women. This is the second theme we see pictured here. And I want to I I zoom out, and I want to ask for a ton of grace on this. Because I know for a fact I'm about to say at least one or two things that you won't like. So show me a lot of grace in this. But I want to zoom out and give you a bigger picture of men and women in the entirety of the Bible. And then begin to like zoom back in to this relationship we see between Deborah, Barak, Sisera, and Jael. You see, the setting in which God's reconciling and literally life-giving work is on powerful, is on, the setting in which these things are on display is between men and women. The setting in which God's reconciling work, bringing men, when, men and women together in a life-giving way is on powerful display between men and women. One of the most powerful places where you see God's reconciling work is in men and women, bringing two different separate things together in a way that literally brings life. But if you go all the way back to the beginning, the very first story of the Bible, the very first story is how men and women are together. They're living in shamelessness together. They have nothing to hide from one another. But the minute they rebel against God, what happens? They're, they're covered with shame, and then they begin to try to cover themselves. And, and then there's a curse that's put out on them that men and women from, the, from that day on not only would be alienated from God, but they would be alienated from one another. And the first curse as a result of the fall is that the man is going to try to lord over the woman, and the woman's going to try to get at the man. And where there once was harmony, where there once was a life-giving and powerful union, there is brokenness. Be honest about this. We don't do this well. I, I mean, I've shared this. Some of the times you can see the depravity of human beings and children the best, right? Just watch some playground folk, right? Like, little girl, I like you. Bang, kick you in the shin. I, and you're like, oh, that. And then, and then later, they like each other. There's like this, and there's weird, there's this weird thing, like, Ooh, boys are gross. Ooh, girls are gross. And then, ooh, I need a boy. Ooh, I need a girl. Like, what? Do you get it? There's, there's this, it's visible if you just look very closely. Man, I remember when I was in third grade, and I was like devastated because there were girls that would chase me on the playground. And I was crushed by it. I, I know, that's ridiculous. And then, about 10, 12 years later, 
I was crushed because I, I was trying to chase them. I was like, come back. <laughs> and from the playground to the workplace, we don't like each other very much. At the very least, we don't really know how to relate with one another. And the way that we relate to one another is fractured. Men and women display the brokenness of sin better than anywhere else. Why? Because Ephesians 5 tells us later in the New Testament that Christ is the fullest expression of God's reconciling work. And when you take a man and a woman, two people that don't really like each other but somehow do, right? And they come together in marriage. It's not really about them. They're actually pointing to God's reconciling work that God can take two different things and bring them together in harmony. And why is that a good thing? Because God who is holy and separate and nothing like you has the ability to reach across the chasm and unite himself with something that is unlike himself. And so you zoom in, you see the picture, like the brokenness between men and women, reconciled now. And what, this is why I said one of the most powerful places you can display the gospel is in the relationships between men and women. Did you feel the tension in the text? Right? It gave us some pointers. Right? The, the, the best pointer we see is in chapter 5, that there's this song, that the leaders took the lead in Israel. Right? As like, what else would leaders have done, right? But what, there's like, there's like a gratitude that, hey, the leaders did step up and lead. Because evidently there was, they had a propensity not to do that. So go back to this interaction between Deborah, who was a prophetess, this wife of Lapidoth. We don't know if that's a wife or just a woman from a place. We don't know if she was necessarily married or not, but, but she was judging Israel at that time. Now remember, we typically understand judges as uh, settling disputes between uh, municipalities or people on a smaller scale, but the book of Judges shows us that God is actually sending judges and deliverers and leaders to settle disputes between his people and the nations. Right? So he judges on a global scale, not just on a small scale. But this is one of the examples where you see Deborah not only operating as a judge to, to, in essence, like mediate between God's people and their enemies here, but also she's mediating between parties. She's so good at it, this is how you know you're good at something, they named a tree after her. She was judging Israel at that time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah. I mean, didn't it sound kind of weird? Like, this is Deborah. Where's Deborah? She sits under the palm of Deborah. Oh, fair enough. It's like Sioux Falls, right? Why is the name Sioux Falls? It's because of Sioux Falls. Never mind, right? So she has a palm named after her. Apparently she is powerful in the word of God. And people would come up to her because they wanted to hear from God. But then she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali and said to him, now this is, this is, this is something... This is pretty powerful. This is what we call in my house a loaded question. Right? Do you want to take out the trash? No. But that's not the purpose of that question. The purpose of that question is go take out the trash. Listen to what she 
Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather up your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river Kishon and his chariots and his troops, and I will give them into your hand. Has not the Lord called you to do something? All right, ladies, catch this. This is the only female judge in the book of Judges. This is it. This is it. For the rest of the time, we notice something is out of alignment. The rest of the judges serve as warriors, and they're all men. But in this chapter, there's something going on. There's something specific going on here. Such that a woman is leading these people. She is the, remember the word judge, delivering, saving her people. And instead of the man being the warrior here, we see her actually like questioning the warrior. Hey, why? Hasn't God told you to do something? Hasn't God placed it on your heart to do something? And we see this tension, at the very least, right? Between the man and the woman. Now, they're not even married. They're just brother and sister in God's kingdom. And yet there's this tension between the two of them. And we're meant to wonder what's going on. Why does Barak need to, be, need to be goaded in this way? If he's such a powerful leader and he ends up being victorious because of God's grace on him, that, that why would he need to be reminded? Why would this woman need to do something here? Is it good? Is it bad? The way we begin to try to live this out as a church who loves the New Testament, remember, our goal is to preach Jesus and Him crucified and resurrected to save His people. We are the bridegroom. Excuse me, we are the bride. He is the bridegroom. We, we are the bride anticipating the return of our King. And marriage even is meant to just point to, it's a picture of a great wedding feast that we will celebrate with the nations around the throne of God, that Jesus will finally have saved us, pulled us out, and we will celebrate like a wedding feast. And the way we begin to live that out is what I would describe as a word, complementarity. We believe that men and women are complementary. That's important. It's C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y, not C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y, right? As in, a compliment is a nice thing you say about a person. You compliment one another, right? But compliment, what P-L-E, it, it's the picture of completion. So we believe that men and women are incomplete without one another. This is one of the most obvious things you note, right? If you remove all the men from the species, the species ceases to exist. If you remove all the women from the species, the species ceases to exist. They need one another. They depend upon one another. Now, yes, we also should say nice things about one another. Should compliment. Yes, ladies, you're awesome. Strong in valor. Right? But there's, there's this picture of a completion. There's, a, there's something that men and women testify to that is beyond themselves. They testify to the design of a creator who delights in bringing disparate and separate things together for his glory. That's just what God likes to do. That's the way he wants to be glorified. And we can get a little glimpse, a little picture. Literally, the life-giving. Light, like when men and women are joined together, life happens, right? Ask your mom or dad, whatever. If it doesn't make sense to you. They, it's literally life-giving. And apart from that, 
we die. And so we believe that men and women are equal, but they are not interchangeable. They are equal, but they are not interchangeable. They have value as image bearers of God, but you cannot remove one. You cannot diminish the role of one without destroying the other. And this goes both ways. And once you say, I don't need you, and I can use you for whatever I want, you are out of step with God's good creation. Now do you see how big a deal it is when you see the boy or girl kicking the shin on the playground? They're testifying to a brokenness that God alone can reconcile. A brokenness which strangely wants to hurt the other rather than saying, I need you, we die if this doesn't work. Then the New Testament picks up on this because the purpose of the church is not to mirror the world and not to mirror natural broken relationships, but it is to mirror the kingdom and reign and headship of Jesus. So we're like this little embassy where Jesus is king. The way we talk about it is Jesus is our senior pastor. Right? I'm, just, I'm just the waiter. Right? He's the chef, and I'm, I'm just serving. I'm just serving the same dish. Jesus is king. His kingdom is coming. His reign is sure. And he is head now over all things, visibly the church. And so we testify to the headship of Christ. Now the way we do this, Paul tells the Corinthians, is that we relate as men and women in a unique and special way that we actually love and honor the strengths and weaknesses of men, and we're willing to sacrifice ourselves to declare something radically countercultural to the world. We forego what we would naturally want, right? Again, be visceral here. Kicking the shin, okay? In order to declare the reconciling work of God that's visible now amongst his people. And so the New Testament says the way that we do that is that we occupy different roles Men and women occupy different roles. And you can fight against this all you want. Here, I'm not talking about gender stereotypes, okay? I'm not talking about some silly, like, construct that says you can't do this or can't do that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about God has made us biologically different. We are, and we die without one another. But if we don't, if we, if men and women try to occupy the same role, we cease to exist, and yet, since we want to declare the life-giving nature of the reconciling work of God, we occupy different, different roles. So for the New Testament, show me a lot of grace here, the New Testament says that one of the ways we do that is the office of pastor, elder, bishop is meant to be occupied by men. That is that women aren't to occupy a space of exercising authority over men. Why? Is it because they're somehow deficient? No, because we are radically committed to testifying to another kingdom. We are radically loyal to a kingdom that I understand, if this feels weird, it doesn't make sense in this world. And it never will. And until Jesus comes back and shows us perfectly what being reconciled to him looks like, the best we have is to show a lot of grace for one another in this. Here's what this means for us. And I know what you'll say. It's 2019, Jonathan. That's so 33 A.D. of you. Yeah, we're weird like that. We, we, we are stuck 
at the death and resurrection of Jesus. We are stuck. That is, like, we live there, and every single thing we understand is through that. That's our watch. It's set to the resurrection of Jesus. Oh, okay. Now, here's what this means. I'm particularly passionate about this passage. Here's why. My calling in life is to raise up and to disciple strong, godly women. It is my sole calling. Now, some of you know the reason why. Because I only live with women in my house. (laughs) But friend, if I fail at that, it really doesn't matter what else I do. And that is my calling in life. And so this means a lot to me. And here's how I would pose this to you. Do we have room in our church for Deborah and JL? Do we have a place? Now we just don't tolerate Deborah and JL, but we go to her under the palm and we say, we need you, we love you. Or are we intimidated by strong women? Now don't miss it, ladies. Do we have a place in our church for the Othniel, Ehud, and Shamgar? Or are we intimidated by them? And I want want you to see very clearly here, when you pit the two against one another, nothing good happens. But when you honor the strength in both, something beautiful happens and you testify to God's great reconciling power. This is powerful for us. And all I would say is, I am building a household of Deborah's and JL's. Let's be a church that not only tolerates Deborah and JL, but we actively identify, equip, and disciple Deborah's and JL's. Let's not be scared of strong and powerful women. So ask yourself this when a woman speaks on behalf of God, and the man goes, I'm not going anywhere without you. Do you immediately think that that's unsubmissiveness? Are you afraid of a woman being unsubmissive because she walks in the power and grace of God? Women, when you see a, a warrior like Othniel or Shamgar who, who dives into battle, do you immediately, are you immediately intimidated and afraid of him? Or do you thank God for him? Are you immediately his victim? Are you imme- is he immediately a bully? Or do you thank God that he's made people like that? And friend, we live in a place where we're meant to outdo one another in honor in the church, and that means that we don't demonize or, or, or begin to even deify men or women, but we love and thank God for the two. I'll come back to this, and you'll see why. The strength of men cannot save and is abandoned in adversity. Did you catch what happened there? 900 chariot leading Sisera does what? Once he's routed in the quagmire, literally, he abandons his chariot. And so his his source of strength, his military might, is utterly mitigated by God's power. And so what does he do? He abandons it and he hoofs it. He's like, I'm gonna, I'm, and he goes, and twice it tells us that he's on the run. And this is a picture of what God does with the things that you and I tend to trust in the most. He laughs at them. And in adversity, you will run from them. You will realize how unable they are to save you. Something else powerful happened. God 
destroys idols and delivers his people at the same time. Do you remember when I told you what happened? They were on a flood plain. Now, who was it that these people, the people of Israel and the people of Canaan, were worshiping? Do you remember? Remember his name? Baal. And what was Baal? The God of thunder. He is the God of the rain. Did you, is your mind not blown right now? Like they, they went into battle expecting that Baal would withhold. And what happened? God poured out the heavens, not just to deliver his people from the army, but to deliver his people from evil. Not just to destroy the enemy of God's people, but to gather them together in a miraculous triumph. God doesn't just save his people, he also destroys their enemy. Sleep easy. God has victoriously crushed the enemy. But I also want you to see something here. We see here what God thinks about men who violate women. It's at the very end. Did you catch it? Remember I told you the the poetry begins to fill in the gaps? Cicero's on foot, and she runs up, and J.L., says, come inside. Did you catch that random thing that was going on in chapter 4, verse 11? It almost doesn't fit in the narrative. There's all these things building up, and then it says, Deborah says, okay, Barak, let's go do this, right? This is what we're going to do. You know, she's going to deliver. And then in verse 11, it goes, now it just so happened there was Heber, a Kenite. And he was separated from the Kenites, a descendant of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses. Well, why do we need to know about this guy? Well, he lives in a tent. And he pitched his tent as far as ways the Oak of Zaananim, which is near, where? The site of the battle. In Kadesh. Now you'll recognize this language from the book of Genesis. You'll remember to pitch your tent toward something. It's not really a good thing to do. You remember, you remember Lot pitched his tent towards Sodom? A way of saying, like, I'm not going to live in Sodom. I mean, I, don't, I would never do that, but I'm just going to get as close to it as possible. And why did he do that? It turns out that Heber who lives in a tent. Why do we need to know that he lives in a tent? What's that got to do with anything? What's God going to do with this tent-dwelling family? Oh, and also Heber is actually entered into an agreement with King Jabin. Why is that important? Verse 24, chapter 5, most blessed, be, most blessed of women, BJL, the wife of Heber the Kenite, of tent-dwelling women most blessed. For he, that is Sisera, asked her for water, and she gave him milk. She brought him curds in a noble's bowl. I love that, right? Can I get a glass of water? And what should she give him milk? She gives like, as if to like nurture him, like, just, just lay down. I'll get you some milk, right? It, it, it's as if she was speaking to a child or a baby. Like, you, you, it's okay. I'll, here's some milk. Well, sure. No woman who would give me a glass of milk would ever harm me. Verse 26, she sent her hand to the tent peg. Notice she probably didn't hit that tent peg once. Getting that long nail through a person's head all the way into the ground takes a lot of work, a few good shots. It wasn't an accident. She was committed to her task. Why? We get this picture of something that happened. In verse 27, it repeats itself. Between her feet, he sank, he fell, he lay still. Where? 
between her feet. Why is that important? Well, then all of a sudden, the poem shifts focus from Jael to Sisera's mother. And now we get a picture of who Sisera is. Out of the window she peered at Sisera's mother. The mother of Sisera wailed through the lattice. And she asked, why is his chariot so long in coming? Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariot? So his mother is crying out, where's, where's my son? Why is he not here? And the response that we get is probably like a response that maybe you would get if, if, if you were kind of like, hey, where's so-and-so? And then your next guess would be like, well, he's probably doing this. And fill in the blank with the thing you probably do all the time and you're probably late because of it all the time, right? Like, where's that person? Well, they're probably doing this. Aren't, aren't they out doing this? They pro- I, 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 surely, aren't they, out, aren't they out? Isn't that what they're probably doing? Because that's what they always do and listen to what we find out about Sisera. Why tarry the hoofbeats of his chariots? Verse 29. Her wisest princesses answer. Indeed, she answers because she knows herself. Had they not found and divided the spoil? Did you catch it? I know why he's late. He's out dividing the spoil. He's out plundering the Israelites. He's out plundering the defeated armies. And how, might you ask, does Sisera plunder the armies? It says, a womb or two for every man. Now, your translation, NIV or otherwise, might say a woman or a girl or two for every man. But that's not literally true. It's not just a woman for every man. It's a part, a body part of a woman for every man. And now we find out why. Jael struck him with a tent peg and drove it into the ground. Because even the mother of Sisera knows if he's late, he's out plundering the wombs of the Israelite women. He is certainly late because he is off raping women. And what does she say? And oh, while he's plundering women, I'm also going to get a great new wardrobe. It's going to benefit me. I'm going to be dressing really well. You get why JL stuck him in the head now? And we get a very vivid graphic picture of how God feels about men who violate women. You get a little snapshot. You get this little glimpse. You hear the language? Verse 27, between her feet he fell. Between her feet he fell. In case you might forget, it's repeated. He fell between the legs of this woman. And it's as if someone might say, even Sisera's mother, oh, he's out between the legs of the conquered foe. He's out between the legs of some woman. I don't mean to be graphic or any way salacious. This is what the text says. And, the, and she's like, he, he must be out between the legs, plundering the wombs of women. No, he is between the legs of an Israelite woman, and he is dead. As if to say, daughters, rest easy tonight. The plunderer is dead. Rest easy, the one who plunders is dead. And the one who would likely have been a victim of the plunderer is what? The victor. God delivers his people by remembering the victimized and inviting them to be part of his stunning salvation and victory over the enemy. Don't miss that. The victims become the victors. By God's grace, the violated become the valiant. Back to my question. Do we have room in our lives for Deborah, Othniel, Jael? 
I'll be the first one to tell you, I married a Deborah. I married, I just, I found a Deborah and married her. And on one hand, you get a picture of kind of the apathy and passivity of Barak. Like, I'm not going anywhere without you. On one hand, it may just because he's afraid. But on the other hand, he may know, look, if, if she has God's word, I'm not going anywhere without that. And I'm, I'm the first one to tell you, even in my own home, I'm the warrior, right? Like, I'm the Othniel, the Shamgar. I mean, I'm not as successful as those guys, but I like to think I am. Right? I'm going I'm to storm the gates. We have an ox goad. Yeah, I know, I got it, right? But I'm the first to tell you the most powerful things in, that have happened in my life have been a result of saying to the Deborah I married, I'm not going anywhere without you. I mean, I'll do this, but I'm not taking another step unless you go with me. Do we have room in our lives for the Deborahs and the JLs? Do we have room in our lives for Othniel, for Shamgar? Or are we scared? Because this passage in the book of Judges holds it up for us to think about. You can't avoid it. It says this is what happens. This is what happens when men and when women relate to one another sinfully. Now I'll give you a, a really quick picture of the rest of this. Ladies, this gets worse before it gets better. One of the evidences of people doing whatever is right in their own mind is that the situation gets worse and worse and worse for women for the rest of the book of Judges. And it ends on a bleak note. It's awful. And this is what I would tell you. The reason this, this, the reason this happens, when people do whatever they want, statistically, I don't, you, can, you can throw this at me all you want, the people who pay the price for evil are always women and children. They're the first ones to get used and objectified. And they become a part to be bought or sold. This is not a joke. This is happening right now in our world. This is, this is not a story from a couple centuries ago. At best, it's a preview of what's happening behind the scenes in our own life. Do you know where every man can have as many women's parts as he wants? It's a multi-billion dollar industry called pornography. And it says this woman is not an image bearer. This man is not an image bearer. They're a part, and you can have as many as you want plunder and spoil for everyone. Friend, do you get now what a big deal it is that Christ has reconciled us to the Father and the picture, the preview of the lamb being slain for the bride, the bride and the groom coming together, even in spite of all the kicked shins. But look, in the end, an amazing and powerful victory is won. There's a battle that's amazing, and thousands of people are killed. A great victory is won. But you've got to get this. It's a battle of iron chariots, the most advanced technology. It's a war on a massive scale, and yet the war is won where? With a hammer and a long nail. It is a war on a massive scale, but what is the victorious tool? It's a hammer and a nail. And they ask, well, is Sisera out plundering women? Oh no, oh no, the woman has plundered him. 
And the New Testament puts it like this. We're introduced to an enemy, a lion that is out on the prowl to seek and destroy. And you'll ask yourself, well, is the lion out on the prowl slaying innocent lambs? Oh, no, no, there is an innocent lamb who has now plundered and destroyed the prowling lion. Don't miss this. Daughters, sleep easy tonight. JL has crushed Sisera. But Christian, rest easy tonight. The enemy, the prowling lion, is dead and he was destroyed by a hammer and some long nails. Don't miss what we are invited into celebrating and singing. Did you catch the impetus for mission? We're called to what? Declare and sing about this. God saved us. It was crazy. How did he do it? Did he use a, you know, did he use a great army? Well, not really. He actually used just a person in private. Now, don't miss what that means for us. That means that that's the place where the enemy wants to hide. Ask yourself this, friend. When the enemy comes by, have you made a place where he can secretly hide? Where you can keep it in the dark where no one will know? Or or have you set a trap so that when the enemy comes to tempt, to kill, steal, and destroy, you will, with a powerful testimony, put him to death with a strange weapon, a hammer and some long nails driven not all the way through the head into the ground, but all the way through the Son of God into an old, rugged cross. Let's pray together and thank God for this miraculous and mysterious victory. God, thank you so much for your word. God, thank you for its sufficiency and its power. Thank you that uh, that it is not expired, that it has relevant topics. But God, I even confess my own inability to address them. I pray now and claim the promise that your word will not return void. I pray that your word goes out and is declared and brings us to life. And so if there's some in this room, maybe they wouldn't call themselves a Christian. And I just thank you, Lord, for bringing them here. Thank you for the act of courage and that has brought them into this room. I pray even now that as they look around and see the brokenness in the world and wonder what must be done, they would hear the story of Jael, they would hear the defeat of Sisera, and hear the echoes of Jesus' resounding victory over all things. That he has crushed that ancient snake, and that he will come back and make all things new. Maybe specifically if there's someone in this room and they they would identify as the victimized. God, right now, would you grant a comfort to those of us in this room who have been taken advantage of? Would you grant a peace over those of us who have been obscured, commodified, objectified, and thrown off? Would you allow us to see that for what it is? It's the work of the enemy. But would you grant us a special comfort that we would know you have in a way that is beyond our understanding taken that enemy, that ancient enemy that wants to use us and throw us away, and you have plundered him. You have crushed him. You have made a joke of him. Might some in this room even now begin to experience just a little bit of the comfort that comes from knowing that the enemy cannot harm us anymore, that death, hell, and the grave have been put to death, that you have resurrected victorious over that, 
Maybe for the rest of us, we just forget. And maybe that's evident in the way that we relate poorly to one another. And the brokenness we experience, might we begin to see here that, that there is no obscure servant girl without significance, but instead it's in the secret places that you demonstrate your greatest victory. Remind us that in the regular putting to death of the enemy in our own lives, we experience and testify to the great victory you have accomplished on our behalf in Jesus Christ. We thank you for this in his name. Amen.